Good morning, beloved. Uh, let's turn together to God's Word. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn there with me to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 36 to 43. And as you turn there, let me offer a word of prayer for us. Father, thank you for giving us opportunity to hear your word. Speak to us, Lord. Let the voice that is heard and recognized be your voice. You tell us you're a sheep, know your voice, and they follow you. And so help us to follow you, O Lord, as we think about your holy word. Build us up in faith. Keep us, O Lord, from distraction. Allow us to grow into the fullness of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, welcome. Uh, you are jumping into Sermon 2 in a five-part sermon series that we typically do in some fashion at the beginning of every new year. It's a series through what we call our five M's. These are our objectives or values, if you will, as a church family. These help to define our mission as a local church and to guide us in what we do. They were originally taken from the book of Titus, which is the closest thing to a church planting manual in the New Testament. And that book has been uh, a foundational uh, passage of scripture, a section of scripture for us as a local church. And those five M's are um, to spread the message of the gospel. We thought about that last week. To show mercy to our neighbors, which we'll talk about today. To um, seek to mature in Christ, to shepherd one another toward maturity in Christ. Number four would be to seek to multiply by planting churches and training pastors. And then number five would be to send missionaries to the end of the earth. So it's the message, mercy, multiplication, uh, maturity, and missions. These are our five M's, and these help to guide us as a church. And today, we want to focus on that second M, showing mercy to our neighbors. We have always wanted to be in the community as an agent for Christ, showing love and mercy and care to our neighbors. We've always wanted that to be practical and material and spiritual uh, and, and consistent. And so we have sought to grow in that way. Now, to think about this more closely, I want us to turn to Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 36 to 43. And as we look at that section of scripture, I want us to think about three things. Number one, a Christian's heart for mercy. A Christian's heart for mercy. It's verses 36 and 37. Number two, a church's heart for the merciful. The church's heart for the merciful person in their midst. It's at verses 38 to 41. And then number three, we want to consider Christ's heart, his heart of mercy for the church and for the lost. For the church and for the lost, verses 41 to 43. So look with me in Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. 
So Peter rose and went with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The action in our text really kind of follows a, a simple straight line. It's not complex action, really. Tabitha gets sick and dies in verses 36 and 37. Peter comes to Joppa and resurrects her, verses 38 to 41. And then the news of this uh, and, and the, the good news of the gospel spreads and people are converted, verses 42 and 43. But it's a passage where we can see some form of mercy in almost every verse of the section. So in verse 36, we get the general description of good works and acts of charity. Verse 37, the church holds a, a funeral service, and they grieve together in verse 39 for the loss of Tabitha. That, that's an act of mercy. Peter leaves Lydda and comes to Joppa to, to visit the church and to care for them and to uh, have this time with, with Tabitha. That too is a, that visitation is an act of mercy. Verse 39, we see that uh, Dorcas or Tabitha had made all of this clothing, these garments, uh, probably for the poor. It's mercy. Pre Peter's prayer in verse 40, it's mercy. Verse 41, his holy touch of Tabitha, it's a touch of mercy. Verse 43, the giving and the receiving of hospitality as Peter stays in uh, a tanner's home. It's mercy. And because the action is so simple, so direct, it's, it's easy to miss uh, how rich with mercy this passage of Scripture is. But beyond the acts of mercy themselves, I want us to focus on the hearts of mercy in this text, the hearts of the actors in this text. Because acts are one thing, but hearts are another. So in our first point, what we want to consider is a Christian's heart for mercy. And we want to consider that by looking at the, the first person we're introduced to, beginning in verse 36. We, we learn four things about this person. And based on these four things, I want to suggest four steps that Christians should take in developing and cultivating a heart of mercy. Well, here's the first thing we learn about this person. We'll spend the bulk of our time in point one here. But here's the first thing that we learn about this person. Now, this person is a disciple. You see it there in verse 36? Is a disciple in Joppa. Disciple is another word for student. A disciple is someone who follows the teaching of a rabbi or a leader. In the, in the Bible, a disciple is a, most often a student of the Lord Jesus Christ. They follow the teachings of, of Jesus. Today, we would use the term Christian. But that term in the book of Acts would come and be developed or invented later at, over in Acts chapter 13. Prior to that, it was simply called disciples, followers, students of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the two words have the same meaning. 
To be a Christian is to be a disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a Christian. Now that, I want to suggest to you, is the first thing that we need to be aware of when we think about developing a heart for mercy. The first step in developing a heart for mercy is to develop a heart for Jesus. To develop a heart for mercy, develop a heart for Jesus. Jesus is the most merciful person ever. Anyone who becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ and truly learns from Jesus will inevitably develop a heart for mercy. In fact, Jesus openly invites his disciples to come to him for the experience of mercy. Think of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, where the Lord says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, he's gentle and lowly of heart. He's merciful at heart. And those who come to him find rest in him because of that mercy. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. How can a disciple learn mercy for Jesus, from Jesus for themselves and not learn mercy for others? Begs the question, really, if, if spending time with Jesus this way shapes our heart toward mercy because it, that's what his heart is shaped toward, then, then the question becomes, do we have a heart for Jesus or for churchianity? Do we have a heart for religion or a heart for the Savior? Have we taken his yoke upon ourselves, for ourselves today, and tried to learn mercy from him? Or do we get our understanding of mercy and when to show it from our feelings, or worse, from our politics, or from someone other than Jesus? You know what was not on display on January 6th as a crowd stormed the Capitol? Mercy. Not, not mercy from that crowd, stirred up into a, a lather, fueled on by false religion, by idolatrous, patriotic, civil religion, fueled on by anti-Semitism and hatred reflected in Camp Auschwitz shirts, fueled on by a perverted sense of who the country belongs to, in all of that, we didn't seek mercy. And I wonder about our response to all of that. If there's any mercy in our response to that. Perhaps we see how wrong that is, how dastardly that is, how, how uh, idolatrous it is, how, how wicked it is. Perhaps we see that clearly. But we see less clearly how to demonstrate mercy in the context like that. Well, I want to suggest to you that we begin to develop a heart of mercy by spending time with Jesus, who is the source of mercy. This brings us to the second thing we want to observe about this person in our text. This person uh, has a name. Her name is Tabitha, uh, or translated Dorcas. 
Now, the Bible is written in three languages, Hebrew, mostly the Old Testament, and Greek, mostly the New Testament, and a little bit of Aramaic. The Bible is a book that has a, a definite historical and cultural context, and, and we're reminded of that when we see these names, for example. Notice how Luke tells us that this disciple, her name is Tabitha. That's the, that's the Aramaic version. Then he says it's translated, it's an interesting word, translated Dorcas. That's the Greek version. And that translation doesn't help most of us, right? Because it's, it's Greek. It's all Greek to us, right? But that, that word Tabitha or Dorcas means gazelle. It means gazelle, that beautiful, light-footed, gracious animal. And that tells us, that hints at something uh, about Dorcas, at least I like to think so. She's, she's gazelle-like. She's light-footed and, and gracious and, and quick and bounding, apparently, toward acts of mercy and, and acts of, of charity. You can see her, if you will, with that name, perhaps even a nickname that, that represents and, and so beautifully depicts the gracious way again. She moves among others and shows mercy. Now, the other thing I want to say about this name, well, it's not explicitly said in the text, but, but I do think it's a legitimate inference from the fact that Luke takes the time to give us the Aramaic to Greek translation. And that's this. It's the second thing that, that we have to have to develop a heart for mercy. That's this. Number two, a heart for mercy will involve crossing boundaries. A heart for mercy will involve crossing boundaries. It could be the boundary of, of language and culture. It could be the boundary of class and ethnicity. It could be the boundaries of politics and social standing. Uh, it could be any natural boundary. But the merciful who learn from Jesus tend to cross boundaries to show kindness to the so-called others. Now, that makes sense, not only when we think about this from the use of the, the two languages to give us her name, but it makes sense when we think about the gospel, doesn't it? For one who is completely unlike us, Jesus, the Son of God, infinitely holy, eternally existent, has crossed all the boundaries between God and man to come to us, indeed to become like us, in order to save us through his sacrifice on the cross. The alien becomes kin, crossing all the boundaries that, that could exist. The Lord of salvation enters into our experience, and on the cross, well, he completes the greatest act of mercy ever. And so now the Christian's heart is meant to be a boundary-crossing heart, extending mercy to others. Now, is that a shift that we need to make from extending mercy primarily to people who are like us to extending mercy to people not like us? Are we tempted to close our hearts toward people who are different? And, and are we more tempted in that direction the, the bigger the difference is, the sharper the dissimilarity, the sharper the disagreement? Are we quicker to pull back, to withhold mercy? Is that how Jesus responds to others? 
So you see, if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to be disciples following his teaching and emulating his life, we're going to have to have a, a strong sense of attraction to others and cross boundaries to serve them. Third thing we learn about this disciple, Tabitha, she's a woman. This is obvious, of course, from the pronoun she in verse 36. It's worth noting that she's a woman and she's a disciple. Because in ancient Judaism, rabbis didn't have women disciples. Women were not taught, but were really made to be second-class citizens. Women couldn't testify as witnesses in a court of law, for example. They couldn't serve um, in any sort of public way in the synagogues. But in Christ and in the kingdom of God, women were equally disciples with, with men and equally witnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's to women that the Lord first appears after the resurrection. They become the first witnesses to his rising from the grave. So it's really no small detail that this disciple is a woman. It points to the inclusive nature of the kingdom of God. It points to the inclusive nature of following Jesus. And wherever the church fails at inclusiveness in discipleship and witnessing, then we distort and depart from the spirit of, the, of Christ and of the early church. Frankly, our sisters in the Lord don't get enough recognition and encouragement as disciples. That's partly why I wanted to preach this text this morning. Because Tabitha Dorcas is the star of this text. And many other texts that teach about mercy, but, but I think it's important for us to highlight a woman of faith because seeing women and girls as disciples is crucial to our spiritual formation and crucial to the mission of the church. And so here's a third thing I want to give you in terms of developing a, a heart for mercy. A heart for mercy begins with seeing and acknowledging the value of others who are often overlooked. A heart for mercy begins or continues with seeing and acknowledging the value of others who are often overlooked. In this case, it would have been a woman, which is what makes this reference to her so, so startling for the first century Jewish mind. But the point is simple. We can't be merciful to people we refuse to see. We, we can't be merciful if we refuse to acknowledge injustices and the vulnerabilities that people have. A, a heart of mercy has to respond softly to the suffering, oppression, marginalization, exclusion, and ignoring of others. And so let me ask you, what, what marginalized groups do we see? in our day, in our life, in our church, in our neighborhood? And how do we recognize their worth and their value? Which marginalized persons and groups do we tend to overlook? What's in our hearts, beloved, to the point, to the point, what's in our hearts that tempts us to overlook them? What's going on in here? that blinds us up here. A fourth thing about this disciple. 
her acts of mercy come from her heart. She acts from her heart. Notice the wording Luke uses in verse 36. She was full of good works and acts of charity. He doesn't say she did good works and acts of charity. She certainly did that. But the phrasing is different. He says she was full of these things. Makes it sound as if these things are in her. These are not outside of her. Things that she merely performs. All today, people who see themselves as progressive uh, like to warn against something being merely performative. Something is performative when it's an, an act or a show or a display put on because of either external pressure or because of you know, wanting the approval of others. If you are a bit more conservative, then you probably don't use the term performative, but in those circles, you probably often hear people using the phrase virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is another word for being performative. It is, it's a negative phrase. It's a pejorative. Virtue signaling is, uh, applies to those acts that are, that are not genuine, but are these sort of outward displays that, that are done to sort of show your morality, to show your virtue in order to enhance your own image. Now, there's a biblical word for those things. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, Paul exhorts bond servants to serve their masters without eye service, without eye pleasing. They use the King James there. So, so this eye pleasing is a kind of performative act. It's virtue signaling. It's, it's, um, it's hypocrisy, really. It's doing things for display or show, but not really from the heart. What God prefers is not eye service or eye pleasing. What God prefers, Colossians 3.23, is sincerity from the heart. And that's what we have with Dorcas. These things were in her heart. These things were in her soul. They were not just performances. They came up out of the center of her being. She was full of good works and acts of charity. If you were to cut her, she would bleed mercy. This is what it means to have a heart for mercy as a Christian. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that these things should come from the heart, right? From the Christian's heart, instead of uh, being something that the Christian just does outwardly, performatively, in virtue signaling. Remember the Lord's words in Luke 6, verse 45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You see where Jesus locates these things? In the heart. That out of the good treasure of the heart, the good or righteous person, the Christian following Jesus, should do what is abundantly in their hearts. Which brings us to that fourth principle for developing a heart for mercy. Number four, goodness must dominate our hearts if we would be people of good works. Goodness must dominate our hearts, must be what is abundantly in our hearts, if we would be people of good works. And Christian, that, that begs us to ask a question of ourselves, doesn't it? What dominates our hearts? What dominates our hearts? Over and over again, the Bible teaches us that whatever is mostly in our hearts 
That's what will determine our behavior and shape our character. So Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the streams of life. We're to keep our hearts, we're to guard our hearts, because out of it flow the waters of life. Out of it flows our character and our, our witness. And so the question becomes, are we tending our hearts the way a faithful gardener tends their garden? The way they turn the soil and remove the rocks, the stony places. The way they pull the weeds that so easily spread and choke out the plants. The way they water the plants and, 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 and make sure there's nutrients in the soil. The way they plant good seed that it might spring up into beautiful flowers or fruit or crops. Do we tend our hearts that way? What would be the state of our hearts if our hearts were gardens? Would they be all grown over and wild, abandoned looking? Or would they be manicured, trimmed, orderly, perhaps like an English garden? And do we perform good deeds because we are full of goodness or merely because of external pressure? Are we tempted to virtue signal? Are we happy to do good if nobody ever sees us and notices us? What's the state of our hearts? Our five M's are values more than they are goals or strategies. A goal is a goal the moment you write it down. It becomes a goal. A strategy is a strategy the moment you attempt it. But a value is different from a goal or a strategy in this. A value must be lived out over time. That's when it becomes a, a real value that we have and, and live by. So we want our five M's to be something we live out over time. We don't merely want them to be nice statements of goals or, or nice statements of, of strategy. We want them to be who we are, going up out of our hearts, being values for us. Our strategies will change over time. We hope our biblical values do not. We will state and restate goals. But will this be our heart? as a church family, as a family of faith. Tabitha has this tremendous reputation because it was Tabitha's heart. Christian, do you have a heart for mercy? Let's cultivate it. Let's grow it. Let's deepen it. Let's enrich it. Let's fill ourselves with good. Good works and acts of charity. And it might overflow into our church family, into our community, into the world. Which brings us to our second point. Second thing we want to meditate on is we also want to meditate on a church's heart for the merciful. A church's heart for the merciful, verses 38 to 41. The kind of merciful heart that we're talking about seems to really grow best when it's planted around others who value it. Not everyone has the spiritual gift of mercy, but everyone can be merciful. 
One of the things that helps us all to grow in being merciful Christians, having a heart for mercy, is having a church family that collectively encourages the merciful. Now, what we see in verses 38 to 41 is a church that not only has a, a heart for mercy, but also has a heart for merciful persons, for people like Tabitha. We see this in, in three or four actions that the church takes. Notice number one, the church funeralizes Tabitha. They have a funeral for her. Verse 37, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Well, that's the language and the tradition of of funerals, of celebrating a life, of mourning, of passing. We don't know if Dorcas had family or not. Perhaps she was always single and never married. Perhaps um, she is a widow, an older woman. The text doesn't say. But in either case, it's the church family as a whole, notice, that prepares her body for the funeral and kind of lays her, we would say, lays her in state, as it were. That's an act of mercy, remembering a life that way. Notice number two, the church also intercedes for Tabitha in verse 37. We, we are not told why they sent for Peter. Maybe they sent for Peter while she was still sick, thinking he would heal her before she passed. Maybe she's already died and they believe Peter will raise the dead, or maybe they just want an apostle to come and to know her reputation. We're not really told here. But either way, the church steps in. They intercede for Tabitha. They, they wanted a nearby apostle to come by and to check on this sister. Well, that little simple act of kindness, interceding for others, getting help for others, is an act of mercy. Tabitha had been spending her life caring for others. Here in this text now, the church is caring for her. So the church is cultivating a heart of mercy toward the persons who have a reputation for mercy. That's important. Number three, notice the church weeps for Tabitha. You see that in the second part of verse 39? All the widows stood beside Peter, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with him. In ancient Israel, there were women who were professional weepers professional mourners. Their, their job was to attend funerals and to mourn, or perhaps after a, a battle that had gone badly, they would come and they would wail and mourn. I can't help but think of um, the show Good Times with Weeping Wanda on Good Times. For those of you, I'm dating myself now, for those of you who remember that show and that character, Wanda can start crying on a dime and then you tell her it's not time yet. She shut it off and start joking. Well, that's not quite, that's virtue signaling, right? That's, that's, that's performative. Weeping Wanda was performative. That's not quite what's happening with Dorcas here and the church. I think the church is genuinely moved, genuinely broken up for having lost his sister whose work and heart was so full of good works and mercy and care for others. To lose a person like this is a real loss to a local church. So the church weeps for Tabitha which is also to show a kind of mercy toward her. Think about it. We all want to be remembered in our deaths, don't we? We want to be remembered well. It's crushing for us to think that we might die and no one notice or care. But it's encouraging to think that we might be remembered. And we might be remembered for having lived well. And we might even have touched someone's life to the extent that they would weep for us. There's a mercy 
in that thought. And the church is showing that mercy. Notice number four, fourth thing here. The, the church leaders visit and pray for Tabitha. Verses 40 to 41, Peter comes, visits Tabitha. He sees the weeping women. They show her the garments that he has made. Uh, he puts those women outside and he kneels and he prays and says, Tabitha, arise. What greater mercy can be shown than to raise someone from the grip of death back to life? And I love how Peter responds to the to the appeal of the, of the brethren. It would have been easy for him to say, you know, I'm an apostle, I gotta oversee all the churches, there's a whole lot going on. In, in, our, in our tribe, he, he might have said, you know what, doctrinally, there's some stuff I gotta straighten out over here, I need to give my attention to theology, you know, maybe a deacon needs to go and to visit her, but Peter doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He actually comes, he visits. He listens, he kneels and prays, and he causes her to rise from the dead. That's mercy from the, from the members of the church to the leaders of the church, the whole congregation, showing kindness to someone who has a reputation for kindness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is the kind of thing that when you give it out, it comes back to you. We might ask the question of Matthew 5, 7, how or from whom will the merciful receive mercy? Well, ultimately, it's from God himself. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Well, consider what Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 to 36 says. Then the king will say those, to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So in the final judgment, in the final reward, it's God who rewards the merciful. It's God who shows them mercy by bringing them into his kingdom. Well, what about before then? What about in this life? In this life too, the beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, is true. Because the merciful also receive mercy, or are meant to, from the local church, from other Christians. That's the way it's supposed to be. A biblical congregation like the one in Acts feels the blessing of the merciful among them, and they reply, they respond with mercy to such persons. And not just when someone dies, as in the case with Tabitha. A biblical congregation gives flowers while people are living. What we want to become is a congregation of peoples whose heart is, are, are, are so full of mercy and, and who also show mercy to those who are merciful. It's part of how we build up the merciful, how we encourage them, how we strengthen them to continue in their ministries of mercy. By as a whole family, a whole church, showing them the same kind of kindness. Now, as we think about this becoming a value for us and living this out over time, one thing we want to avoid is the legalism 
of tireless demands without the grace of unending encouragement. Sometimes Christians slide into the habit of always saying, we need to do more, we need to do more, we need to do more, of being never satisfied. And sometimes that demand itself to do more, do more, that demand itself is performative. That demand itself is virtue signaling. We're drawing attention to ourselves and looking for approval for ourselves because we are critiquing the church or Christians for not doing something. Now, in point of fact, many folks who are critical of the church aren't doing themselves. We can build a church culture that never shows honor and always finds fault. But listen, there's so much need in the world. There's so much need just in our community that it's pretty easy to point out that something somewhere is not being done. That's easy to sort of point out. We can become experts at dissatisfaction. We can build a church culture that is motivated by guilt instead of God's grace. Beloved, that's not healthy. We should, as Romans 12.10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. That's the competition, not in criticizing, but in showing honor. We should become experts at celebrating the grace of God that's at work in each other's lives and at work in the community. It's celebrating that grace that leads to a more joyful experience of the Christian life. It leads to hearts that are full, not of legalism, but of grace, of mercy, of love. And so the question becomes, what part must you and I play in making ARC a church like that, a church that celebrates grace, that rejoices in it, and extends mercy to those who are cultivating hearts of mercy. What's your part in that? What's my part in that? Which brings us to our final point, our final observation. We want to consider something about Christ's heart for the church and for the lost. We need to understand this passage in a supernatural way. We've been focusing on the human actors, Tabitha and Peter and the church there. But we should not lose sight of the divine actor. Shouldn't lose sight of the God who's at work in and through everything we've been considering. We've seen the Christian's heart for mercy. We've seen the church's heart for the merciful. Now we need to consider Christ's heart for the church and the lost. <clears throat> We see Christ's heart for the church in the very act of, of giving people like Tabitha to the church. Ephesians 4 says that, that, that God has given gifted persons to the church for the edification, for the building up of the church and the work of the ministry. That's a gift from God. You see a brother or sister in a church family who, is, who seems to be uh, have a heart like Tabitha's? You should rejoice at that. We should recognize that that's, that's God's work in their life, and they are God's gift to us, a gift of God's mercy, really. Tabitha didn't become a, a, a merciful servant to others without, as a disciple, sitting at the feet of our merciful high priest. She didn't come into that church apart from his gifting of her to the church. 
And we see Christ's heart for the church in raising Tabitha from the dead, don't we? Oh, what a gift of love that was to that weeping congregation. Can you imagine him? Can you imagine um, when Peter called the saints and the widows over to, to see Tabitha and presented Tabitha to them fully alive? They had been swimming in tears. Now with Dorcas raised, they were shouting with joy. In fact, they were so excited. And notice what verse 42 says, that the news of this spread all over Joppa. God relieved them of their grief and showed his glory in Tabitha's resurrection. And that was a mercy not just to Tabitha, but to the whole church. Which brings us to Christ's mercy to the lost. See also Jesus' heart for those who are taken in sin. The story doesn't end with Tabitha's resurrection. Verse 42 says, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. This means that many who were dead in their sins and their trespasses heard the good news of Jesus Christ and were raised to eternal life through faith in him. This is an eternal mercy and everlasting love, and all of it happened by Christ's design. Think of Joppa. It's mentioned for the first time in the Bible in Joshua chapter 19, verse 46. It's an area that borders the, the tribal lands of Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a seaport town with strategic significance. The next two times it's mentioned in the Bible is in 2 Chronicles 3, 16, where Solomon uh, has the timber to build the temple shipped through Joppa. And then again in Ezra chapter 3, verse uh, 7, where Ezra does the same thing in rebuilding the temple and the altar, that wood, the cedar, is shipped through Joppa. It's a strategic port town. But Joppa is probably most famously known because it's mentioned in Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. This is the town to which Jonah ran when he was trying to escape the call of God in his life. He got on a ship there and, 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 and hid himself in that ship and tried to sail in the opposite direction away from Nineveh. But God intercepted him, took him to Nineveh anyway. Joshua, or, or excuse me, Jonah went to Nineveh not wanting to preach God's message because he was not a merciful prophet. He did not have a merciful heart. He wanted the Ninevites to be punished by God but he knew that God was merciful and might grant him repentance. Nevertheless, God sends that prophet there and that message spreads and the people repent and God is merciful. This is, this is why Joppa is so um, sort of famous because of that incident of Jonah passing through there. But now God is passing through Joppa again. In fact, he's stopping in Joppa now. He sends not a disobedient prophet, but he sends an obedient apostle. He sends Peter there, and Peter does this miracle, raises this woman from the dead, continues to stay there several days at Simon the Tanner's home, probably preaching and teaching the gospel, and the gospel goes out, and the next thing we know, many people believe. They heard the good news that Tabitha was resurrected, and they were told that wasn't even a fluke. That Jesus had raised Lazarus long before Tabitha, and Jesus himself had been raised from the grave by God the Father. That's what God does. He raises people from death to life. He gives them a new and eternal life through his Son. 
Christ died on the cross to defeat our sins. He died on the cross to defeat death itself. He died on the cross to close the entrance to hell so that everyone who believes might be caught up into God, brought into his kingdom, and live forever with him. Tabitha's is just a, not even the first, but it's one in a gazillion resurrections that are going to happen. Because all who die in Christ will be raised on that last day to live forever with him in the kingdom of God where there is no more death and dying. In fact, the Bible says that if we repent of our sins and believe in Christ, we do not die. We pass from life to life. At the moment we die, we go to be with God and to be in his presence forever. That we lay this body down. Did you notice that language there when Peter talks to Tabitha? He said he spoke to her body. Why? Because she wasn't there. She was with God. He raised her from death to life. Just as Jesus will shout on the last day and raise us from death to life. And our victory will be final and full. And our joy will be complete and satisfied. Beloved, you may not be a Christian. But this is what we want you to experience. We want you to experience the, the power of Jesus' resurrection that can raise you from spiritual death in sin to spiritual and eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to enter into that life, you have to repent of your sins. That is, acknowledge them before God, confess them, admit them, admit that they are wrong. Indeed, I would encourage you to take this this afternoon, perhaps, and to get a, a, a blank piece of paper or several sheets of paper and just, just list your sins. List every wrong thought, every wrong word, every wrong deed. List the wrong ways you feel and the wrong ways you act. Things that you know displease God. List them all. Confess them to God. Ask God for forgiveness for your sins. Uh, and claim that forgiveness by saying to God, acknowledging to God, I know that all these sins and ones I can't even remember, Jesus suffered for them. He paid the cost for them. They are now nailed to the cross with Christ, and I don't bear them anymore because he has taken them away. And in exchange, he has given me his righteousness if I believe in him and follow him in faith. And if you do that, if you list those sins and confess those sins and, and ask God for forgiveness and you put your faith in Jesus as the one who paid the penalty for those sins and the one who brings you righteousness, who was raised from the grave for your eternal life, if you do that, I want you to take that paper and go outside, safe place, burn it. Crumple it up, tear it up, throw it away in fine pieces. Because the Bible says, if you put your faith in Jesus, God will cleanse you of all unrighteousness and you will not bear your sins anymore. He will blot them out. He will remove them uh, as far from you as the East is from the West. And your identity will not be centered anymore. Though you will sin, your identity will be forgiven child of God, resurrected in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust him. And all that Jesus is and all that he does will become yours. And the power of the resurrection will be the power by which you live. 
What's God's heart for the lost? Is that they might be raised from death in sin to life in Christ and live with him eternally. Isn't that the greatest mercy you can imagine? All your sins forgiven and all of Jesus' righteousness credited to you? That's how merciful God is. Trust him, believe in him, turn to him, hope in him, and live. Church, let us be a merciful church, and let us cultivate a heart of mercy, and let us take the message of mercy in the gospel to the nations, to our neighbors, and let us demonstrate that mercy in acts of kindness, small and great, visible and invisible. Let this be our heart. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would make us merciful just as you are merciful. You command us to be so. We pray, give us grace to be so. Help us to be individual Christians who cultivate merciful hearts and out of those hearts do all kinds of good works and acts of charity. And help us to be a church family that is merciful toward the merciful church family who prizes and encourages this character of yours uh, in one another. And Lord, help us to, in mercy, take your good news, your gospel, to the lost, right here in our neighborhoods, from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe, we pray. Give us grace to be faithful, to proclaim Jesus in the midst of it all, we pray. Give us mercy, and give us grace to be merciful. In Jesus' name.